Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. My name is uh, Robert Rowe. I am a professor of music technology at NYU in New York and an affiliate uh, here in the Arts and Humanities Music Program. And uh, I'm going to be introducing um, some of the research that we've been doing here over the last eight years or so on uh, cross-disciplinary and multicultural perspectives on musical rhythm. So really trying to explore what are the... um, what are the, the functions, the, the structures, and the uses of musical rhythm in music around the world, but particularly in music of this region? Uh, and a group has formed uh, that continues that work, uh, or has continued it over the past several years, including researchers, students, uh, and collaborators. Uh, and we'll be introducing several of them. We'll be speaking tonight, uh, and we'll be talking more about their work uh, as we move along. Um, But you could regard the mission statement of what we do as the following, Um, that the music traditions of the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and India all show areas of overlap as well as points of dramatic difference. Our goal is to put data-driven methods into conversation with musicology to show the relationships between these traditions and how their similarities and differences begin to explain what are fundamental, universal aspects of musical behavior, which are culturally determined, how these interact, and how musical ideas flow from one culture to another. So a very broad uh, look, both cultural and um, musical, at uh, the relationship between rhythmic behaviors uh, among these many cultures. So the region we're primarily concerned with uh, uh, includes the Arab Mashwik, comprising present-day Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Jordan, and western Iraq, countries of the Arabian Gulf and Peninsula, including eastern Iraq, South India and the Western Indian Ocean, including port cities and regions of Eastern Africa. So a fairly large uh, geographical area, but one that has a long history of uh, interaction uh, culturally, uh, politically, economically, and musically. So our research began um, by organizing three workshops under the auspices of the uh, NYUAD Institute, in which we brought experts from around the world in four main areas. Musicology and ethnomusicology, computational modeling, perception and cognition, and neuroscience. And you'll see why all four of those areas were included as uh, we go along. Um, But uh, as you look at this list, if you know any of those fields, these are really the the rock stars of of those areas, particularly as they relate to the study of musical rhythm. So we've had people from Kofi Ugao came to all of them from Princeton, uh, from Cornell, Columbia, Uh, from Durham University, York University, from uh, uh, Paris, from Kuwait, from India. Um, It's really a pretty amazing uh, list of participants uh, that we were fortunate to bring here to think about what could be a research agenda around musical rhythm. Uh, How might we formulate methodologies to uh, find the right questions and uh, ask them effectively? Um, And... uh, coordinate that with the research that is happening in other uh, laboratories around the world. First one took place in uh, 2013, um, in which we had a public panel discussion. We had a, we had a concert. Uh, we had a series of uh, 
of uh, papers and uh, discussions uh, looked like this. This was from the um, the brochure that came out from that uh, first session. So you can see that we had very many interesting discussions uh, and then a number of public presentations. Um, and one of our one of those presentations was given by our dear friend Godfrey Toussaint, who uh, passed away this summer in a shock uh, to all of us. But uh, it was really through Godfrey that this work all came to pass. Uh, he was the director of the computer science program here at NYUAD. Uh, and actually, it was at a lunch. Uh, Reinhard Falkenberg brought me and uh, Godfrey together to a lunch on the Corniche in 2011. Um, and right then and there, we decided that this was an area that needed to be studied. Um, and Gottfried was uh, an instrumental collaborator. Actually, everything we're going to talk to you about tonight happened because of Gottfried. You can really say that he was the, the catalyst uh, that made all of this come together. Uh, passionately interested in uh, computer science and data-driven techniques, but also in music itself and, and in interdisciplinary research. Uh, he worked a lot with the NYU AD Institute, uh, and he worked a lot with people uh, in the arts and humanities as well as the computer science program. Um, his work was central to what we wanted to know. Um, he wrote this book, The Geometry of Musical Rhythm. He was interested in trying to find ways of measuring complexity and similarity among rhythmic patterns um, and wrote this book on how to um, uh, characterize musical rhythms, how to compare their similarity, and how to uh, discuss the, what their complexity might be to a human listener. So did a lot of research with human listeners, human subjects, having them listen to rhythms and rate them in, as, in terms of their similarity and complexity, and then compare that to his uh, ways of modeling it. Uh, we have a pretty extensive website up, including uh, videos of all of the talks. Uh, this is Gottfried in 2014. Thanks, Robert. Um, as, uh, as my title suggests, I'm not talking about musical rhythm. That's too complicated. So I'm talking about musical rhythm duration patterns, just to simplify things. So uh, um, what's the motive? So we have, uh, you can go to the MASK site, and there is uh, a link to all of the presentations that were given um, and a lot of material about what goes on here. But what ba Gottfried's basic uh, approach was to find representations for musical rhythms. Um, and you can look at this set of uh, representations. One is traditional music representation, um, barred in different ways. You can then have onsets and rests, eighth notes and rests. Then you get to dots and spaces, or X's and dots, or ones and zeros, and now we are in a, in a computer representation. So all of these are saying the same thing. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one. So it's the claveson, a very famous uh, Cuban rhythm, but also used in many cultures around the world. But you can represent it as this series of onsets within a pattern of 16 possible onsets. So how are those onsets distributed across the possible time points were the representations that he would use and then uh, compare using various metrics to say how similar they were, how close they were. What he was trying to do is make a phylogenetic tree of the relationship of uh, rhythms from cultures around this region, but also around the world. Um, and in doing that, in trying to find distance metrics, he was using the Euclidean distance, but then also found that Euclid had an algorithm for finding the, um, 
the uh, greatest common divisor of two numbers, but that same algorithm could be used to find the maximally even distribution of time points within a circle of possible onsets. So in this, in this case, you see eight possible onsets. And if you divided that by, if you had four points, you wanted to put in eight onsets, it would just be two, 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 two. Not very interesting. I mean, obviously that's maximally distributed. Um, but where it gets interesting is if you take eight time points and just put three onsets in it. By using the, the Euclidean algorithm, Gottfried's technique generates one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, which turns out to be the Cuban tracio. Or if you try to put five within eight, you get one, two, one. which is the Quintillo. So it's, both of those come from trying to evenly distribute as much as possible the onsets within the cycle of eight beats, um, and then found rhythms around the world that have those same characteristics of, of even distributions within a cycle uh, that you can hear in an example like this one. You ain't nothing but a so you hear the tracio, and then you also hear them clapping the quintillo. So rockabilly was a, a big, uh, a big proponent of, uh, of this kind of rhythmic behavior, uh, and all of that could be generated using uh, Gottfried's algorithm. So in fact, there are now he, he told me at one point he's probably should have patented it, although it's hard to patent a, uh, an algorithm that Euclid came up with. But it's being used in plugins all over the place. People are generating rhythmic patterns, drum patterns, using this technique. Um, Gottfried, one of the last times I saw him, was about to go on stage with this group, the, uh, the Campus Cats, uh, doing covers. Uh, he did a mean uh, Charlie Watts imitation in their version of the Rolling Stones. Uh, and there will be a more thorough remembrance of uh, this wonderful man and his work on uh, November 10th. So uh, any of you who knew him uh, should mark that down uh, to come join us uh, to celebrate his life. Um, but we've had many other people come to talk about uh, rhythm. One of the most prominent of them was uh, Marc Chamelier from Paris, who um, really brought to the fore one of the main things that we found, which is that the understanding of rhythm is dependent upon your enculturation. So the kind of music that you have heard, what you know about music, determines how you are going to experience music. Uh, and he had some really interesting examples to bring that point home. One of them uh, comes from the Hindu uh, people in Africa who have this rhythm. And as you listen to the first example, you might try to imagine where you would clap if you were clapping along to this rhythm. It's funny, I see heads nodding at different positions. And basically where you nod depends on what kind of musical tradition you were raised in, where you are trained to recognize the beats. This is how the Hindu themselves clap to it. Which to Western listeners at least would feel like the upbeat. Actually, one of my favorite lines that Kofu Yigawu said in uh, our workshops was that uh, 
you know, people often remark that, that Africans don't, don't clap on the downbeat. And he says, well, you know, everybody knows where it is. Why would we clap on it? That sounds like something a baby would do. Um, but, you know, take the same rhythm, and Herbie Hancock used it, but westernized it. So he moved the, the beat onto where a Western listener would most likely hear it. also different from uh, what an African listener would hear. Another example is this, um, you know, just looking at this and try to uh, parse the various layers of rhythmic behavior happening at the same time uh, between the dancers and the musicians behind them, in particular between the way they're clapping and the, uh, the, the feet of the dancers. Tightly coordinated, but very many uh, disparate layers uh, on top of each other in a very complicated way. Clearly understood by everyone involved uh, in this uh, communal performance. So Mark brought in a listener, played them, played him this exact same uh, videotape, and he immediately responds. He immediately responds uh, in the same way that the people in the video are, uh, are behaving. Um, but then he's asked to do a Western-style experiment. He's asked to, to step uh, on the beat. And just look at the change in his expression as he's responding spontaneously and as he's asked to do what this you know, foreign mindset wants him to do. <laughs> Immediately familiar with everything about it, just responds uh, uh, intuitively. Now just put the headphones on and try to uh, step to what a Westerner thinks the beat is. He couldn't look more miserable. <laughs> and he's trying to do it, but he's just also trying to understand what it is this guy wants to know. Um, so the second workshop was in 2015. Uh, we discovered something rather alarming that I'm might be too late for all of us, but uh, according to Ladies Home Journal in 1921, a number of scientific men who have been working on experiments in musical therapy with the insane declare that while regular rhythms and simple tones produce a quieting effect on the brain of even a violent patient, the effect of jazz on the normal brain produces an atrophied condition on the brain cells of conception until very frequently those under the demoralizing influence of the persistent use of syncopation combined with inharmonic partial tones are actually incapable of distinguishing between good and evil, right and wrong. So, I don't know, I'm sorry, I think it's too late. Um, 
But another one of our collaborators was uh, Juan Pablo Bejo, who's now the uh, director of the Center for Urban Science and Progress in New York, uh, but an uh, electrical engineer, data scientist, who has really been one of the leaders in our efforts to take large collections of music and analyze them using machine learning techniques to um, extract patterns and find regularities. This is his method for finding structural similarity. In fact, you can see the big diagonal line is identity across a piece of music, but the, the kind of cross-hatching and, um, and coloring shows you the relationship in different sections of the music. It actually segments it into related parts um, just by looking at the audio and, uh, and analyzing it. So now we can run tens of thousands of examples through this software, and it will tell us something about the structure of that music rather than having a human annotate each one. Um, but uh, I also said that another class of uh, investigators that we brought were neuroscientists, among them Ed Large, who's been here several times, reinforced this point I was just making in saying that although responsive to stimulus properties, pulse and meter are not themselves stimulus properties. These terms refer to endogenous dynamic temporal reference that shape experiences of musical rhythm. So rhythm happens in our head. It happens as a result of listening to physical stimuli, but it's really an interaction between what we hear and what we already know. Um, the way that we're enculturated uh, affects the way we're going to interpret these stimuli. But at this, So that's one important reason for talking to neuroscientists about this. But another is that there's actually very profound things happening in the brain as we listen to music. And this is Ed demonstrating one of them. So what we can do, in fact, is use these ideas to uh, explain things like percepts like pitch, like harmonicity, and stability and attraction. Here we have an experiment I just want to demonstrate for you where we measure the action potentials in an early part of the auditory system in response to some tones. So here I'm going to play you some three sinusoidal tones and then I'm going to actually play the action potentials that we record in the brain through the speakers and you're going to hear something pretty interesting. So high, low, medium tones. Now let's listen to what the brain does with that. So you didn't hear any response to that first tone, but you did hear a response to the second too, and it sounded like that frequency. And that's because those action potentials were actually phase-locked on a cycle-for-cycle -cycle basis with the tone. So here's the close-up of the tone. That's a sinusoidal tone, and you get one action potential for every cycle of that tone. That's called phase locking. So your brain is actually resonating at the frequency of the tone that it's hearing. So there's the activity in the brain that corresponds to the frequency that it hears. And you can find similar kinds of activity that lock into rhythmic patterns. So that actually the neurology is responding in a very deep way uh, to these stimuli. Um, so there's many different kinds of applications that you can make of these types of uh, investigations. Armand Leroy came in the, to the third one and did machine learning on audio signals of uh, pop music from uh, 1960 to 2020 and then uh, grouped them. So did kind of unsupervised learning on all of those um, 
feature vectors and found how pop music was changing over time. So I was able to say, you know, when what types of vocals were used, uh, what kinds of, what kinds of instrumentation, um, and show the evolution of popular music just by using machine learning on um, those Billboard um, uh, tracks. Here's Kofi again. Uh, it's the same point. So you can take these three stimuli like this. And there's a famous book by Lairdall and Jackendoff. Actually, if you're in a Western music theory class and your instructor plays you this and asks you to um, notate it, to transcribe it, you're going to transcribe it. In fact, you'll probably be marked wrong if you don't transcribe it like what's on top. Three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. Um, but in the high life uh, pattern in Africa, it'd be one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. So exactly the same physical stimulus, but interpreted in two radically different ways, according to the tradition uh, in which you were enculturated. Uh, so what we're trying to do is apply these machine learning techniques to see what kinds of patterns they can find. Um, and it's called big data for a reason. You need lots of data to do it. So uh, we have been collaborating with the library and other partners to make a large collection of music from this region. Um, we have over 500 hours that the library has uh, collected. We have the, the Andy Eisenberg uh, collection, 170 hours of Swahili Tarab music. We've been working with the Centre de Recherche Ethnomusicologie in Paris. Um, they have digitized for us over 3,000 items, um, and they have given us access to another 30,000 items uh, in their collection. So what we're doing is just putting our analysis software on their servers, collecting features that then we can uh, analyze with uh, our learning techniques and uh, discover patterns uh, from that. This is some of the, um, the data that we have here. We've also collected data by making recordings ourselves. Uh, so you should all go to the concert tomorrow night of Tarab Music in the uh, Art Center. Um, but uh, my colleagues here went and made um, high-quality field recordings in Zanzibar in uh, January of 2018. Sounds like this. So having very clean, high-quality recordings like that makes a huge difference to what the automated analysis processes are going to be able to find. Many of the recordings that we got from Krem, for example, are from cassette tapes or even wax cylinders. I mean, it's a very uh, delicate process. I mean, the, the people who do that regard it as they've got one shot. They have one chance to get that off there. Because uh, you play the wax cylinder, the next time you play it, it's going to be degraded from what it was the last time. Uh, cassette tapes may, you know, you may get one chance. Uh, so we've been getting that, but the, the quality of the recording you get out of it, even though it's digitized and now better preserved, can be very noisy and uh, will affect how you can analyze it. So having these high-quality recordings makes a difference. Sometimes done with a video recording as well. This is a pearl diving ensemble in Kuwait. <coughs> So 
organ, you can see layers of activity between the different drums and the hand flaps. Uh, this is the geographic distribution of the creme collection. And then there's lots of things that you can do with this. Very simple things even, such as taking the audio and then making a, uh, a graph that shows the vocal uh, activity over time. tracking the fundamental frequency of the voice as it goes along. But it's a way of looking at vocal ornamentation and landing on the stable pitches of a scale. We've worked with many partners around the world, including um, the University of Pompeo Fabra in Barcelona. They did a similar project looking at Indian music, flamenco, uh, Chinese opera, and the fourth one, I forget. Um, but also doing automated analysis of the audio signals, uh, grouping them by similarity. And now you can browse through their collection um, by rag, by tala, by artist, by uh, any number of, um, of aspects of similarity between these uh, examples that were computed by uh, automated processes. So we are using uh, many techniques from uh, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence now has uh, obviously gained enormous traction. I mean, there's been tremendous breakthroughs uh, in the last five to 10 years uh, that have all happened through this technique of big data, through machine learning, through uh, training machines on large collections of data to uh, perform pretty amazing uh, feats, such, such as becoming world champion at Go. So a couple of years ago, uh, Google beat the, uh, the reigning world champion in Go, which is you know, orders of magnitude more complicated than chess. Um, in fact, this was so shocking that the Chinese didn't show the match on television because they were afraid the human would lose, uh, as indeed he did. Um, but that kind of thing actually in a way, is easier because the machine got so good by playing against itself. And when you have a game like Go, it's easy to measure success. You win or you don't win. Uh, so it just kept playing against itself thousands and thousands of times until uh, it gained enough expertise to become the best in the world at this. But it depends on having lots, of, lots and lots of data that is correctly labeled. Um, and if you don't have that, it doesn't do so well. Uh, so many people are noting that it is great for translation. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we're seeing it used for now. But there's many people, such as Fei-Fei Li from Google, who says the definition of today's AI is a machine that can make a perfect chess move while the room is on fire. Or Jeff Hinton, who's probably more responsible than anyone uh, for the latest revolution, says we need to start over because this kind of technique, while it can do amazing things, has severe limitations and is being, um, people believe that it's much more powerful than it is. Probably the most frightening example I know of is this one, 
There was a case in Wisconsin in the United States where uh, the prosecutors asked for a um, someone who had been convicted of uh, of uh, robbery. Prosecutor asked for a sentence of five years. The judge pulls out an app on his phone, types in you know the the person's age, uh, gender. Says no, the app says ten years. I'm giving him ten. So it has been trained on, you know, prior convictions uh, and recidivism. And he says, no, the app says 10. I'm giving you 10. So that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court said, that's perfectly fine. Judge can do that. Don't have to know how it works. Don't have to know what the data was. You don't have to know anything about it. Um, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> Which, you know, is just... Uh, you don't know, first of all, you don't know how the thing was trained. But even if you did know how it was trained, all that is doing is taking all the mistakes we've made in the past and encoding them into an algorithm that will make sure we perpetuate them into the future. Uh, actually, it's very interesting that some of the most um, important discussions about this distinction are happening right now between two NYU professors, Jan Lacan, who along with... Um, with Jeff Hinton and uh, Joshua Bengio just won the Turing Prize as, you know, the most important computer scientist in the world, is one, now the chief scientist for Facebook, and Gary Marcus, uh, who are debating about where the, uh, where the line is drawn between what purely data-driven techniques can do and where you need something more like human intelligence. As Gary says, the right move today may be to integrate deep learning which excels at perceptual classification with symbolic systems, which excel at inference and abstraction. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to incorporate both machine learning and data-driven techniques with human domain knowledge uh, to find out what human experts can tell us about how well these systems are working. And there's a lot of evidence that that's a good technique. Uh, one paper that came out of our lab in, uh, in New York uses something called human-in-the-loop computing. So it was trying to identify the occurrence of noise on a collection of, um, of recordings from, from New York City. So there was a certain artifact that would occur in some recordings. So a machine was trained to try to say where the artifact occurred and where it didn't, um, and then would present to a human listener the, the examples that most confused it, where it couldn't tell if the artifact was there or not. And the human would say, artifact or no artifact. And then the, the machine would train again. So the machine just kept presenting what confused it the most and had a human listener disambiguate that. And within 20 iterations, or, you know, yeah, even 20, 40, it performed much better by having a human help it. Um, so we are doing this in, I mean, you, you see lots of examples. Carlos has made uh, you can make machines to generate material, which is also what we're doing. There are companies that claim to do that for advertisements or films. Uh, Ampera Music, uh, or I guess the previous one, I love this, the artificial intelligence who composes, who composes emotional music. Uh, this They're calling their software who now. Um, Carlos made one uh, and colleagues to automatically generate pearl diving music. So the idea is to take the knowledge gained from studying this music, make an algorithm that will produce new examples of it, and then ask experts whether it makes sense or not. Um, this is a little bit of what came out of it. You can gauge to 
to what extent it sounds similar to the video uh, that we saw earlier. But we're going to see more of that in a moment with uh, our guest uh, Akshay Anantapadmanabhan, uh, has been a collaborator from the early days of this work, um, and he's going to come up here and and play along, uh, play, teach you how to do Kanakal for one thing. So Kanakal is the uh, the Indian way of teaching rhythm through saying the rhythms. So we have a, a large collection of recordings of Akshay performing the same rhythm at from 60 beat per minute up to 210 beats per minute, and then saying the same rhythms from 60 beats per minute up to 210. So I'm gonna show you this video for a couple of reasons. One, to see how you can use Conical to teach rhythm. Second, to see the power of it as a, a pedagogical technique, uh, as these children learn to do it. So these little kids can do it, you're gonna be able to do it too. And third, because it's just so adorable. So all of this, much of it relates to this uh, now very large field called music information retrieval, which is uh, an important thing that we do uh, in New York and with our colleagues here. Uh, the idea of taking audio and uh, extracting patterns from it um, and being able to say something about uh, the content of, uh, of those signals. Um, so we have several researchers uh, here and in New York engaged with that, but in collaboration with... Uh, Musicologist, ethnomusicologist, including our colleague Andy Eisenberg, who's going to uh, tell you more about it. Thank you. I'm going to quickly talk about some of the, the new research projects that are just starting up, and then I'll bring on Carlos to talk about 
the research projects that are ongoing. We now, MASC is becoming an organization with multiple intersecting research projects. We're also expanding beyond what you see here. This is not completely updated. Uh, we have as part of part of our, uh, we brought under our umbrella uh, Professor Jonathan Shannon, who's sitting over here, um, who's an anthropologist, who's a visiting professor of anthropology here and permanently um, at uh, CUNY. Um, who has extensive experience in the Arab world? He's written two, two ethnographic monographs on on uh, on Arab music. Uh, we also have uh, assistant professor Yi Fang uh, in computer science, who has uh, a, a, an extensive portfolio in deep learning techniques and um, is going to teach us a lot about uh, about what Robert was just talking about in, in terms of um, uh, how to teach. Uh, computers to do uh, things that humans can do or to try to merge the two kinds of intelligences. Um, so the latest projects we have, um, we have uh, an REF-funded project, um, which is a continuation of, 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 of work that's been going on, uh, which we call computational, Computationally Engaged Approaches to Rhythm and Musical Heritage, Establishing Cross-Cultural Relationships Using Data-Driven Approaches. Um, this is where we're, we've already been working, um, uh, headed by, by Carlos and Robert, um, on developing uh, machine learning techniques for exploring rhythm. And under this new REF, we'll be doing more recording, especially developing further the digital corpus of Emirati and Gulf musics. Um, so expanding uh, in, into the region closer to home here. Uh, we also have another small pilot project, which I'm very excited about, um, uh, I, I, and partly because I'm the PI of it. Um, but it's uh, we're calling it the Swahili Musical Imagination, Intercultural Style and Aesthetics in the Compositions of Ali Salim Basilama. It's a very specific uh, project focused on one composer. It's a pilot project in the sense that um, we're trying to develop further, expand our, our kind of interdisciplinary work that we're doing here. So... So far, MASC has done a lot of work uh, in, in uh, machine learning, uh, using machine learning techniques. Um, and we always, you know, understand that there has to be, as Robert's been talking about, domain knowledge, which means working, into, in, in, working in dialogue with ethnographers like myself, like Jonathan Shannon, um, and with uh, practitioners like Akshay. Um, and... Um, what we're trying to do with this pilot project, actually, which is a study of one Tarab composer who happens to be who, hap who happens to be the father of one of the musicians you, you'll see tomorrow if you go see the Tarab concert, um, and uh, that musician's brother, the other son of this um, of Ali Salim Basalam, is our is our uh, uh, our collaborator in this. Um, this project, we're, 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 we're working in, in, in a vein that we're calling radical multidisciplinarity. We're trying to uh, actually put three tracks on, on equal footing in this. And one is a kind of what we could call traditional ethnomusicology kind of approach to musical analysis. So in, in essence, Masin and I, working with other practitioners, are going to work in dialogue to do a kind of insiders analysis of the music of how of how it's understood uh, along with a set of questions that come out of our dialogue that are sort of ethnographic questions that that emerge about how this music is understood another track will be the the computational track um which which also 
also involves uh, practitioners, you know, focus groups that we're going to do um, to to sort of again train the kind of algorithms. Um, so a computational musicological track, which will try to find. So I, sh- I should say the the sort of underlying question of this is is about uh, musical style in in Zanzibari Tarab, and it's about specifically how this composer creatively synthesizes influences from Indian film music and Egyptian music. So, so we do the ethnographic kind of portion, and, and this is really, we're asking questions about how, how musicians think about these influences. Is this an Indian melody, or is this an Egyptian melody? What's the maqam? What's the mode? Um, and about the rhythm. Uh, and then the computational side of things, we're actually going to develop corpuses, by corpuses, um, three groups of, of you know, we'll have the Ali, Bas, Ali Salim Basalama songs, then Hindi film songs, and then Egyptian songs. And we're going we're gonna to use computational techniques to try to find similarities between them, which again, those two tracks then are brought into dialogue. That's the idea. So we won't just have findings from each track, but questions that then can be brought to the other track. Along with that, we have a third track. Because this is sung poetry, we can't ignore the poetry. It would be it would make no sense. So we have we're collaborating with um, with uh, with uh, scholar uh, Professor Clarissa Verke at Bayreuth University and her group, um, which uh, Bayreuth has the 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 oldest and and most renowned Swahili studies program in the world and. Uh, and they work in close dialogue with scholars from Kenya and Zanzibar and Tanzania. Um, and she's, she and her group are going to do an analysis of the poetry, asking some of the same questions. So about in terms of form and in terms of other kinds of, of poetic references, how is it playing with Indian influences and Arab influences? And then we can bring these three tracks together to see how a composer works with synthesizing these, these different influences that um, that that are at play in 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 uh, in Swahili tarab. So it's exciting. It's kind of an experiment, um, and we're hoping that it pushes us further toward really bringing ethnographic approaches, uh, other humanistic approaches, together with computational approaches in new ways. And with that, I'll hand it over to. Oh, sorry. Um, I'll hand it over to Carlos to talk about ongoing research. everyone. And I'm just uh, here to talk about two of our main ongoing projects. And we're continuing like in reverse chronological order. So Andy just um, introduced a project that is actually officially starting tomorrow with the focus groups interviews um, of the the musicians uh, here. And um, two other big projects that we have at MASC is the Digital Companion of Regional Music and CAMEL, which is a generator of carnotic percussive sequences. And I'm also going to start, uh, initiate the fun part of this talk because I have some demos here of software that is not fully foolproofed. And so let's see how this goes. The software may crash. Um, As you saw from the example um, that Robert showed um, about the generator of paraliving music, I mean, it was not, if you know the style, you, you know that there is substantial differences between what, what the program is actually generating and what the, the musicians were performing. And that was because we didn't have enough data. And 
Since around 2015, we started collecting data uh, through actually a, a global seed fund that uh, enabled us to, um, to get the crime collection and create an archive of, of music from, from this vast region so that we actually have data in order to, um, um, to work with. But moreover, um, and it's very dangerous to call this an archive and we prefer to call it a digital compendium uh, because archive denotes this idea of kind of having a freezer, right, in which you put your stuff there and then you preserve it and you keep it like that. Um, what we want to do is actually exactly the opposite. We want to, through this archive, to actually create a cooking machine that, that can give us uh, and highlight um, relationships between the, uh, this music. So we kind of see this archive as a tool for transmitting and understanding culture. Uh, and we're doing this in three ways. Um, one is to develop new ways of browsing large collections of musical data. The other one is to try to gather deeper insights between the cross-cultural um, relationships that may emerge from computational analysis. And finally, to have this data that can feed all these models that then can, people like Kostov, uh, who's on machine learning postdoctoral associate, can work in order to train models, in order to perfect these generative models, which um, have as ultimate goal to create tools for people to, um, to play and get enculturated into the regional music styles. So uh, what I'm going to show you first is um, this, um, this app developed by student researcher Oscar Gomez, uh, which the latest version is uh, as old as yesterday. So what we have here, actually, let me start from here. So what we have here is um, a plot of the collection from the library uh, in red color, that's the, um, of Arabic music. And in green color, we have uh, the um, Andy Eisenberg um, collection of Swahili Tarab. And we want to ask questions. So each one of these dots represents yeah. one song from that, excuse me, <laughs> represents one of these songs from that, uh, uh, from those collections. And um, we want to, to basically, what we want to do by, by doing this, type of plotting is to be able to ask questions uh, to the compendium, like, for example, you know, just group all this music, you know, all these uh, 1,500 songs or 10,000 songs, you know, according to rhythmic similarity or according to the specific scales in which they're played, uh, according to the instrumentation. So we can get, like, these dynamic uh, visualizations of this data uh, and, and really understand closer the relationship between them. So if we... For example, now this is this wonderful application that uh, that Oscar did. If we over over the mouse over these these examples here, let me just move this a little bit up. So when you over your mouse, you can hear this example, and this is actually um, sorting by, by terminal similarity, which is one of the basic techniques in music information material to compare genres and styles. And you can see that these examples pretty much sound the same. What? Uh, it's by, by temporal, tem temporal similarity, yes. Um, the, the computer selects at random 15 seconds, uh, more or less at the, um, halfway through the track, 15 seconds of it, and then compares all the examples. And um, so what is interesting is that you start finding similarities between, you know, in terms of timbre, which is a very basic, um, basic feature, 
between um, Swahili Tarab and uh, the Arabic collection that we have here in the library as well. Well, this uh, audio is not playing. This neither. I told it's not so, um, and we, we're going to start being able to establish all these relationships. And you can see uh, this is actually quite robust because it shows you. Uh, it shows you um, these this temporal regions, actually, across the entire, the entire collection. So here, for example, you have music that is with plug strings. And if you move... So one of the things that we want to do um, is actually now, this, this was yesterday, um, Oscar just showed me um, this, uh, plot this in 3D so that we get, because this works uh, through this um, algorithm. So when you're measuring these things, uh, you have, you're comparing many dimensions from the music. And here on the, on the timbre, you're comparing frequency bands. We have like the, as many dimensions as the frequency bands. And so you get like this multidimensional space that extends beyond beyond 2 and 3D, and then we apply, we employ this, um, this algorithm for dimensionality reduction, in which you can actually see this in 2D or in 3D. And uh, yesterday, this is actually what, what Oscar showed me uh, in 3D, and again, you see all these dots. You, it's not playing yet, but you see all these dots uh, that shows um, the, the relationship between, between the, the, the collection according to temporal similarity. One of the things we want to develop, uh, and I'm hopeful that we're going to do this already this year, is actually develop a VR environment in which you can put your VR goggles on, you know, select the features that you want the browsing music uh, from, and then walk, you know, and, and, and tra traverse uh, this world and play uh, the music by touching those, those little dots. In space. So this is one of the things that we're doing, um, and uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. <laughs> Moving on, Camel. Um, Camel is a Carnatic percussion generator. This is actually our oldest project. Uh, they've been working uh, for the past six years with, uh, five years, um, with Akshay. And um, this application uh, attempts to, to generate carnotic percussive sequences. Um, and we, use, we do this through a data-driven approach again by recording lots of examples of, of Akshay performing this music and then doing some competition analysis. There's actually three, three stages to the development of this. One is the analysis that is mostly done computationally. The next one is the creation algorithm that kind of highlights uh, some features of the, the, that that, that emerged from the analysis, and finally the improvement of the generator in, in dialogue with Akshay. We've done, uh, we've been doing several iterations. Um, so far, we have like three or four iterations already in terms of trying to improve the algorithm through this, again, bringing the human in the loop, or in this case, uh, the expert musician in the loop. Um, so the, um, the analysis is done in three stages. We do the annotation of, oh, so this is, excuse me, Keynote. <laughs> it's one of the examples of the many uh, that we have uh, from Akshay. And this is the Murdangam. And then the analysis, we get like a time domain representation, which you can see all the strokes that can be extracted automatically by a computer. What cannot be extracted automatically by the computer is actually the type of stroke, because that's one of the things that we want to understand is like, which hand initiated the stroke, the register of the stroke, the intensity of the stroke, and the, 
inter-onset interval, um, the, the, basically the, the duration between consecutive strokes. And we had this done again by our amazing uh, student researchers over summer internships of annotating all this data um, after you, you get the, the onset detection, you know, annotating all the data so to, to, in order to figure out which strokes belong to, to what. Um, and then we encode them like this. So uh, we have five registers for the Meridangum, a low and a high and three mids, the hand, uh, the duration of the inter onset interval, and we normalize the velocities to three, to three um, values like soft, medium, and hard. Then, you know, all this data gets analyzed again automatically by a computer using an, um, an algorithm by our amazing old friend, Gottfried Toussaint, the, the mutual nearest neighbor algorithm for grouping, in which basically the algorithm is going to find significant boundaries on this sequence. So we, we're listening to, I mean, the computer is listening to all these six hours of uh, this audio, constant audio stream, and basically what it's going to do is try to make sense by, like, parsing this into, into phrases that can then um, be used comparison uh, for, for comparison. So here, that's what we come up with. So we encode these rhythmic phrases in kind of these sentences uh, in which you can see here, for example, I'm going to just go through this. Um, the, we have this high register stroke performed with the right hand with a duration T10 that's actually uh, what was equivalent to an eighth note with... Um, a medium intensity, and then followed by a low stroke performed by the left hand with a duration of uh, 16th note, you know, it's soft uh, intensity. So we wing code um, all these patterns, and then uh, another, uh, the third stage of the analysis is actually the clustering. So then the computer goes and does unsupervised clustering on this, so just basically compares each pattern to all of the other patterns that found and creates clusters of patterns that are similar. And again, because you get into this high dimensional space, uh, where we use again the algorithm to basically reduce the dimensionality of this so that we can have then a map of rhythms. Uh, and you can see we love maps. <laughs> and so what you have here um, is basically a map of the clusters plotting the, the clusters in, in, in 2D space. Uh, and you can hear I'm going to play this one, this one, and this one, so that you can see that the, the proximity relationships actually have to do with similarity. An example from the first one. Sec an example from the second one. An example from so they're <clears throat> quite different. Um, then, you know, once you have all this sorted and you want the computer to actually generate something that sounds convincingly like um, like Carnatic, I mean, you have like this bag of, of licks of, of short rhythmic phrases, but then you need to articulate them in time. And that's like when we started. You know, first, we tried this with uh, hidden Markov models, uh, but then at some point, you know, in New York, I was actually talking to Akshay, and Akshay was saying, no, 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 we, we do these things. We concatenate uh, groups of durations, you know, in order to generate, um, you know, to generate the rhythmic sequences um, in a tala. And then I started asking him further about that and say, well, you know, you can just, um, you have the entire tala and the subdivision. For example, in this, um, we have a tala of eight bits subdivided in, um, in four subdivisions. So we have 32 durations altogether. And say, well, you know, we just 
play 8 plus 4 plus 8 plus 4 plus 8, or then we can actually switch and, you know, employ different strategies. So then we created this application that can um, enable a user to perform, to play um, clusters and actually create variations and do some things that I'm going to demo to you now. So what you have here is that uh, in Camel, you select uh, a cluster, or first, sorry, you select uh, a way of a, part, a partition the, that you want to use uh, to actually generate your tunnel. And you have these numbers that actually in the previous slide. And according to the partitioning that you choose, uh, the program shows you that they have more clusters or less clusters um, of, of those of those types of partition. And uh, the darker they, they appear, the more uh, elements you have. So now, you know, from this information, I know that if I want to use this partition, uh, you know, this cluster has a lot of examples, you know, in, in this, um, in rhythms uh, on this duration, and these clusters don't have that many examples. So, and I can start using this to, you know, play and, and, and perform some chronotic sequences. So, So now it's concatenating uh, these short phrases. I can filter. Actually, this was filtering. Okay. And if I want to make variations of this, I'll just open this red circle. Okay. And now it's actually traveling through all the examples that it contains in the cluster in order to produce its own variations. It's actually a nice uh, short and sweet trick to, to make variations that I've, I've used a lot before. And then, you know, when this was some, it kind of sounds okay. I mean, it's pretty synthetic because we're working in samples of the, the Mridangan. But I was getting very enthusiastic about these results, and then I showed these results to Kostu, uh, sorry, to, um, to Akshay, and Akshay said, nah, we're not there yet. Um, and asked him, so what, what is missing? Um, was that? Yeah, this, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not carnatic. I mean, it doesn't sound carnatic. So, because the problem here that you have is actually, you know, how you actually shape the phrase through time. Because uh, what we have, you know, I have a bag of licks and I, I'm picking them randomly. So there's actually no articulation, no, no, um, no direction in time. And I was like, okay. So that's when Kostov, whom I'm going to introduce uh, shortly, uh, gets seen and is going to present to us uh, the, the next iteration uh, on our work in order to, to include um, knowledge constraints for the generation of canonic rhythms. Kostov. Uh, the set has been perfectly set, so may I please uh, request Akshay to take the stage because it will also include few demonstrations. So uh, where Carlos left, the sequences that was generated by Camel were kind of syntactically correct. They were grammatically correct, but there was a semantic gap. So how to join one chunk to the other and 
to align that with how musicians think in their long-term sequences is what we found that there should be a rule. So we came up with two hypotheses and it's kind of adding knowledge constraint to the model, the human knowledge. So I got uh, discussions with Akshay that how do you relate or organize all this material to make a bigger sequence? Because as a short sequence, it was doing all fine, but in a long-term sequence, we wanted a semantic uh, relation. So the first hypothesis is to imagine these phrases as gestalts, not only concatenation of different syllables. So for example, uh, the hypothesis is a sequence of strokes when played in a faster pace behaves as an independent unit and not just a mere concatenation. So maybe I'll play here and also request Akshay to demonstrate. So this is a very simple uh, phrase, Tarikita Tom. And could you please play that? So this is Tarikita Tom. Now, when we pace up to the double speed, how does it sound? And what we have done is two versions, one machine compressing it as if it's generated from the machine. And we also had recordings from Akshay, what he would have played in a natural sequence in the double speed. So first we'll play this. And the other one is, so these, this one is a machine generated and the earlier one was the original. So we don't find too much of a difference, but when we go to the next speed, so this is the original. So we can see a rolling sound, maybe you can. So the resolution of each stroke is getting reduced when he's playing in a flow. But when we do our time warping by machine generated, we see it's very staccato kind of thing. So can you play these two in isolation? And the other one? That was a machine. Yeah. <laughs> So the hand gesture altogether is different. So we wanted to add these knowledges to the model that in what sequence you are, what location you are, and as if the human is thinking how to articulate that, we are using that model into this. So this is still an ongoing uh, project. And uh, the other one, I'm not going into the details, the other one is to imagine the improvisation as a fractal. So fractal, as we all know, if we go to like more resolution in zoomed in versions, the pattern remains the same. So for example, uh, if we take a meter of five, maybe one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. Can you play that? Like, And if you do double, if we go double, observe that the left hand is still playing at the first beat, the right hand is going in the second, and maybe the higher one, the higher speed. So this is a very natural occurring phenomenon that we have observed, that musicians maintain both the low frequency like the pattern and also the high frequency carrier, which is kind of the rolling sound. So if we can add these two things to the model and how we do it are different techniques, like we in, uh, have subband energies and we see in different bands, different number of onsets are there. We are also very close to automatically transcribing the Mridangam syllables 
And yeah, this is an ongoing project and I maybe uh, request Carlos to come and summarize. Thank you. Yeah, well, now we're getting into the even funnier part of the talk, which is the demonstrations. I'm going to, going to have this announced duel between man versus machine, in which I'm going to perform camel in a duet with Akshay. We're going to ride the camel together. <laughs> and then, um, spoiler, human wins. And then um, you're going to have um, uh, Akshay and Kostu finishing this um, this session with an amazing performance of Kostov's actually not only he's a great researcher and a postdoctoral associate working for us, uh, but he's also a professional vocalist of Hindustani music and one very 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 fine musician. So we're going to have something like North versus South of India um, here. So let's get ready. So human, are you ready? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start jamming because one of the things that we, I mean, one of the goals that we, uh, we want to develop these applications is actually not, not to replace the, you know, the fantastic musicians, but it's actually to have people like me who know very little about this be able to actually have fun with, uh, with these uh, bad musicians like, like, like Akshay. Um, and that's actually the main motive uh, of driving all this research and the research that I've been doing the past uh, 10 years. In, in creating these, these generative models is actually to be able to have users, you know, engage with other people, uh, professional musicians, but people that uh, don't know that much about music, but, you know, be able to communicate musically with, um, with professional musicians. So we're going to start uh, again. Uh, disclaimer, this, I cannot guarantee this is going to work, but it should be a fun show. Okay, a little bit.
Okay, so a lot of Indian rhythm in general has starts on the basis of numbers on a very basic level. And I think you saw the partition slide that uh, Carlos had put up. So we're all going to learn a little bit of this rhythm, rhythmic idea, and we'll learn to count in this language called Kornokol. And Carnatic music is an oral tradition. So this is how we learn the form as percussionists. So today we're all going to be percussionists together. And first we'll learn a little bit of Konakol, take a break and listen to some music between the North and South Indian, Hindustani and Carnatic music. And then we will all perform a piece together. So we're going to check your memory after teaching you Konakol. <laughs> so let's learn to count. So one is ta. Can you say that? Yeah. Two is takka. Three is takita. What's one? Two. Three. Your naturals. Okay. Four is takadimi. Yeah, this is this is the one that you really form grooves with in konakols. Can you takadimi? Takadimi. 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 Pretty good. <laughs> All right. So, just like you have math, arithmetic, two plus three is five. Can somebody venture a guess as to what five in Konokol is? Yeah, very good. Have you learned Konokol before? Okay. <laughs> so she's learned Indian Indian Bharatanatyam dance? Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of that rhythm, rhythmic idea in Bharatanatyam dance as well, which is the classical dance form of South India. So yeah, five is correct. Takka, two plus three, takita. So takka, takita is five. Can we try that? Takka, takita. Takka, takita. That's okay. You can be loud. Takka, takita. Takka, takita. Takka, takita. Takka, takita. Takka, takita. Takka, takita. Awesome. So this is not an easy concept, but you guys are doing great. So I'm going to do a short improvisation in this. Taka takita 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 tata takita taka takita taka takita dim dim taka takita tata takita dim dim taka takita tata takita kurdaka dum taka takita tata takita kurdaka dum taka takita tata takita kurdaka dum taka takita 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 Takata kita, takata kita, kerja 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 dalam takata kita, 
So this this is kind of the possibilities of Konakol. In fact, I just came up with this improvisation right now. But basically because we we worked with the numbers takita 3 4 takadimi and 5 takatakita, I decided to put it all together in this composition. So, remember, takita is 3 <laughs> and we'll get back to it right after we do a combination of hindustani and hindustani melodies and carnatic rhythms in this collaboration thanks akshay uh, can we have the drones please so i am going to sing a composition in rag kedar which is hailing from the kalyan that and it's set in 16 bit tala cycle So we have not jammed before we just thought we'll spontaneously collaborate let's do
for the real exam. <laughs> so, who remembers what three is in Konakol? Yeah, go ahead. Takita. Takita. Can you say that? All right. So we're going to do a, we're going to have a chorus line in Konakol. I'm going to teach that to you. And every time I point to you during the track, you're going to say it with me. So here's the chorus line. Takita takita ta. Three times. Takita takita ta. Takita takita ta. Takita takita ta. Stop. Your turn. Again. Takita takita ta. Takita takita ta. Takita takita ta. Stop. Your turn. Awesome. So. You guys got it pretty easily. So just whenever I point to you, you're going to say this line along with me in the track. Okay? Takita takita ta, 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 tak
Your turn.
Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.